Well, speaking of loss, and also speaking of ministry and preparing people for ministry, like Bible training for church pastors and leaders, Ray of Hope in India, we, are, we, 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 we want to know about the future. What comes next? What is life after this life going to be like? And often we couch that this way. What will life in heaven be like? What will it be like when we're in heaven? Well, maybe that's the wrong question. What if I were to suggest to you this morning that our goal in ministry... Our purpose even in sharing our hope in the gospel with people around us is not that we would get other people into heaven. That's not the ultimate goal for a couple of different reasons, but I say that to get your attention. Okay, now that you're listening. What if, first of all, the goal of the gospel is, is heaven or would the location where we would be for eternity is actually incidental. The goal of the gospel is right relationship again with our God who created us. And that comes through faith in Jesus Christ who dies for our guilt, that our guilt is removed from us. We're restored into right relationship with God. We belong to him. We belong with him. So, of course, we will be with him for all of eternity. The location of it is incidental. But let's talk about heaven for a minute. Will we all be in heaven forever? And what would that be like? Well, I don't know what that would be like, but it would be odd. It would be different. It would be other than we expect. I would suggest to you that have, what if, what if, now this is going to rattle you a little bit too, what if heaven is temporary and earth is eternal? Oh, now I've got your attention. Some of you are saying, well, yeah, that's a few of you. Those are saying, What? Heaven is temporary and earth is eternal. Yes, Paul describes that to be away from the body and to be present with the Lord, but he says in that same chapter in 2 Corinthians 5 that our desire is not to be unclothed out of body forever. Our desire is to be further clothed upon with a glorified body that lives somewhere. That this corruptible must put on incorruptible. That this mortal must put on immortality. And that we will live bodily and physically somewhere. And Revelation chapter 21 is going to tell us where. Our God is indeed in the midst of making all things new. And all things will not only include the new you, but where will the new you live with God for all of eternity? We're going to talk about that this morning. Now, it wouldn't surprise you. This will be a little less controversial a statement. Revelation 21 comes after Revelation 19 and 20. I dialed it down just a little bit to be a little less controversial now. So, so chapter 21 comes after chapters 19 and 20, and that helps us just to put things in perspective just a little bit. So there's a timeline. I put a version of this up before, but I wanted to remind you of it. The bigger picture of Revelation and what happens when and where. We are way over on your far left-hand side there, somewhere around 20, 22 so far. We don't know. It's dotted lines. We don't know how long that'll last before we enter the tribulation period. The tribulation period is a seven-year period. We have the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the, the seven bowl judgments that occur. I understand it right at the end of the tribulation period. Most of the book of Revelation focuses on that seven-year period. 
And then we come in chapter 19 to Jesus' return, where the armies that the Antichrist and the false prophet had rallied together against the Lord in his coming, they are destroyed. The Antichrist is cast into the lake of fire, and Jesus reigns as king, the greater son of David, for a thousand years. After that thousand years, a wonderful ongoing time for people who lived from the tribulation into that millennial kingdom have the opportunity to live under a righteous king and to know Jesus in life with him on the earth. They will have for, for a thousand years the opportunity that the disciples had for three. Imagine it. It will be one last opportunity of God's restoration individually. And those that refuse, those that reject, those that at the end of such a glorious time of a thousand years, when Satan is released, would, would join his revived rebellion. They will be shortly dealt with. There is a, the great white throne of judgment, and then we enter into eternity. And for our eternity, God says he will make a new heaven and a new earth, for the old has passed away, and Peter describes it. In 2 Peter chapter 3, Peter says, well, before the earth was destroyed by water, but the earth is now being reserved for destruction by fire. That this world and all on it will ultimately be consumed because all will be made new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and that's where we arrive in Revelation chapter 21. So there's an overview that he gives in the first four verses. Let's read those. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of fire from, um, coming down out of heaven from God. Sorry, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Short version. There's a new heaven and a new earth. The old has passed away. And I said that, that there would be passed away in a great fire. People want to talk about global warming. There will be global warming, certainly. But the result of global warming will be a new heaven and a new earth that God, God is going to make. There's a new order coming. You want to have some funds with your, fun with your conservative friends? Uh, I, I, have, I have friends that are uh, that are a little more politically engaged than I do, and some I am, well, some of you think oh, I'm pretty political. Uh, anyway, uh, you want to get some of those folks riled up, start talking about the new world order. Boy, there's a buzz phrase, huh? Man, you can see the hair stand up on the back of their necks, the new world order. Well, if this is somebody that's not a Christian, and yet they're, they're, they're politically conservative, and they get riled about these things, tell them that, you know, you, you understand from the Bible that what we need is a new world order. It's kind of like saying, you know, around political season, what we need is a good king. And the Bible tells me he's coming turns the conversation. Now, it might shut it down, but it does swerve the conversation in a whole new direction. You know, we do need a new world order, and the Bible talks about that. 
And that new world order is right here in Revelation chapter 21. And this is what God says about it. There is a new heaven and a new earth. And there's a glorious city, the new Jerusalem. And this new Jerusalem is kind of like a city temple. It's almost like the whole city is a glorious temple where the presence of God lives with his people. It's not God lives there and people come to it. God lives there with his redeemed. There's a new heaven, a new earth, a new glorious city where we will be with God. And short version, verse 4, it will be great. No tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, no grief share, none of that. It will be good. Remember when God said in the garden and it was very good. It will be very good. Well, I'm interested now, it's not a heaven thing that's being described here either. This is the new heaven and new earth. Well, wait a minute, the new heaven and the new earth. What does that mean? Well, when we read heaven in the Bible, we mean one of three places. It was said that when the Greeks looked up in the day, they saw the first heaven, the uh, blue sky, the, the birds of the heavens, the Bible says, right? And when the Greeks looked up in the night sky, they saw the second heaven where the moon and the stars are in the heavens, declare the glory of God, Psalm 19. And then, when we look by faith, we see the third heaven that Paul talks about, where he saw things that he wasn't even allowed to tell us about. So heaven is used in the Bible as the atmosphere around the earth. It is used about the, the cosmos around us with the stars and the planets and the galaxies. It is used beyond creation as the dwelling place of God itself. I take it this new heaven and earth joined together because the old heaven and earth have passed away. That's not that God's dwelling place passed away. No, it's this heaven and earth upon which we had lived has passed away. And so a new heaven and earth is provided for humanity in new, immortal, incorruptible bodies to exist on. Well, who is it made for? Who of humanity gets to be there? That's an important question. Before we start talking more details about this wonderful real estate, who's qualified to live there? It's an important part of the conversation, isn't it? Let's look at verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne, God's in charge of this, says, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. It's new and it's true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment, without cost. The one who overcomes will have this heritage. This will be theirs. This is their inheritance, is another way to think about that in Old Testament terms. And I will be their God, and they will be my sons. And as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So first of all, who is it for? It's for the thirsty. Jesus talked about that, didn't he? 
In Matthew chapter 5, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. He doesn't say blessed are those who are righteous, but those who long for it. Maybe even realizing your lack, but you long for it. And he provides for us his righteousness. Isaiah 55 says, come everyone who thirsts. Come to the waters. He, he who has no money, come, buy, and eat. I think this is one of the verses that the Spirit is bringing to John's mind here. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Boy, there's a question you can, you can go to town with. Listen diligently to me, God says. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will, give, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Jesus, in the midst of the old Jerusalem, said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus says, I've got you. I will provide what your soul is longing for. Come to me, believe on me. That's the one who overcomes, or the one who conquers. That's that term that we've, we saw true, uh, uh, applied to each of the seven churches. That's that, that's that word that came up later in the testimony of those who were the redeemed. It was said of them, and they overcame or conquered. Overcame seems to be a better word. John uses the same word, in same translation in verse, uh, uh, well, in, in, in his first letter, 1 John. Where, where he says, and, and faith is our victory that overcomes the world. It says they overcame by the blood of the Lamb. His death for our guilt. Forgiveness. Forgiveness that brings us back into right relationship with God. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb and the word of his testimony. That testimony about Jesus that they believe. Where they said, God, I believe you concerning Jesus who died for me, to bring me into right relationship with, with you. The one who overcomes, this is their inheritance. And they overcome, overcome by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of his testimony, so that they don't love this present life more than God's future promise. The ones who believe, but it's not for the fallen, it's not for the sinful. Did you catch that? Those all the disqualifiers, and as we read that list of those who are not quali disqualified for God's future wonderful new earth and this heavenly city, the cowardly, the faithless or unbelieving, the detestable, for murderers, for immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, all liars, all liars, all cowardly, all unbelieving. All of us would fit into those descriptions. You know, by that list, David wouldn't be there either. So how could that be true? How could any of us, why bother going on talking about it if none of us could qualify? Well, here's how we qualify. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 to 11, describe the same kind of scenario. Paul says to the Corinthian believers, the church, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And he goes on to list a very similar list of murderers, of idolaters, of, of, of those who are immoral, liars, and on it goes. And he says, he even gets more personal, he like Nathan the prophet did with David, he puts his finger on his, their chest and he says, and such were some of you. You've done that too. 
And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified, made right with God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Have you been washed? Have you believed? And on that basis, you are qualified. It's on the basis of forgiveness in Christ, washed in his cleansing, that my guilt is removed. And so God says, as far as the east is from the west, so has he removed our transgressions from us. On my own rightness, I would never get in. But on the rightness of Jesus in my place, I am welcomed in abundantly. There's the entrance. Those who overcome by faith in Jesus, this is their inheritance. Well, if that's how we get in through Christ who died for us, what will God's new be like? What's the future going to be like? Let's get a little clarity of the future. Because think about it. Now, why is John doing this? Or why is the Spirit doing this for John, for these original churches who are going through very difficult, hard times? Life is not right, and they're in the midst of it. Their world has been turned upside down. They are persecuted because of their faith in Christ. They have lost homes, possessions, or work, or livelihood. Some of them have lost their own lives because of their faith in Jesus. And this is not right. They know the sufferings of this life. They know the injustice and the corruption. They know the rulers around them, local and central in the, in the empire, in the Caesars. They know that these rulers are corrupt and unjust. And when will it ever be changed? Thus the cry of the martyrs, how long, O Lord, how long? It's to them that God is graciously providing. This is what the future is going to be like. Carry on, hang on, trust me through the difficult because this is your future. And getting that clear and compelling image of what the future will be, that not only sustains them in the present, but it motivates them to live for God's future rather than this present. To not love their present lives more than God's future promise. That's why clarity of the promise makes a difference to us. So let's get into it. What is it, what is it going to look like? What's it going to be like? Let's start at verse 9. Verses 9 to 11. Then, I came, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall. It had 12 gates. We'll go on. But let's pause there for a moment. There's this city. And he says, let me show you the, the bride, the wife of the lamb, and, and we're expecting to see the redeemed. And then he shows him the city. I understand it from what he's talked about elsewhere concerning the bride of the Lamb, who are the redeemed, that this is the home of the redeemed. This city is for the redeemed, especially those who are considered the bride, the wife of the Lamb, as the church is described in, 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 in other of Paul's letters. So there's some unique thing about the church here, and this is our eternal home, and it's a, it's a city. It's a physical place. The new Jerusalem. In verses 12 to 14, it has, it has walls and gates. Let's read a little more. 
a high wall with twelve gates, and at the gates twelve angels, and on the gates the names of the twelve tribes of the son of Israel are inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them are the twelve names of the apostles of the Lamb. Well, that's interesting. It has walls and gates, and they're associated with the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. What would be the purpose of that? I would suggest, first of all, our future joy will also remember. There are things that it will not remember. My sins, my iniquities. But there are things we will remember. We will remember, even as Israel remembered the Passover, even as they remembered God's deliverance out of Egypt. And when they forgot, that's when they begin to wander. And they were called back to remember what it was that God had done for them. We will remember God's faithful choosing and long-suffering, his patience with, and his restoration of Israel. We will remember our own redemption through the gospel given to us through the twelve who walked with Jesus and how Jesus humbled himself and walked with them. That redemptive history will still be not only known but celebrated. That is the foundation of our eternity and we will not forget it. We will glorify God for all that he has done through time and history. There will be walls and gates, but the gates are always open because there is no evil present. But a, gated, a walled city was a secure place, and we're to know this is a secure place. The, the height of the city compared to the height of the wall doesn't seem to be much at all. It's probably that the wall is, 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 is that 144 cubits wide. It's probably a wide wall, a broad wall. Um, those of you that are in our Old Testament survey will see a similar wall tonight in our study in Isaiah. But I digress. Let's look at verses 15 and 16. More descriptions of this city. So this is not the whole new earth. This is just the city still. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. Sounds like a very expensive measuring tape. The city lies four square, or its square, its length, is the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. 12,000 stadia, or the length of a stadium, would be about 1,400 miles. Its length and its width and its height are equal. Well, that's interesting. It's square, and then again, as it is square, so also it is tall. Is it a cube, do you think? Could, that sounds like a cube, doesn't it? And a cube works in the Old Testament. The hook in the Old Testament for a cube would be that would point us right back to the Holy of Holies that God also laid out in the tabernacle and the temple and the temple, the Holy of Holies where God himself dwelt, where only the high priest could enter once a year and not without a sacrifice. That Holy of Holies was a perfect cube. The presence of God was there. And now this city where God dwells with his people it's a perfect cube, or it might be. But it could also be, it could also be a pyramid shape. It's not a pyramid also, and I was just to mess with your minds and your assumptions. A pyramid is also equal in length and width and also its height, or it can be. So in a pyramid shape, well, what would be the purpose of that? Going back to Egypt? No. The purpose of the pyramid would be to remind us of the Mount of Assembly, where again God dwells with his people. And who can ascend to the Mount of Assembly? Well, I can, 
I prefer the Holy of Holies. It's a simpler concept for me to grab hold of. And I love the linkage there where once Jesus entered in for me, because he did, I am fully welcome. And so are you in faith in Christ. Where the high priest could only in once, enter once a year, we have full access into the very presence of God in this temple city come down to the new earth. It's almost 1,400 square miles, we read. Now, let me put that in perspective for you. Just a square city... Imagine a city that's that big. Now, I am not saying the New Jerusalem is going to be centered in the United States. That is not what I'm saying. Please don't take it that way. I'm just working with what's familiar to us. From San Diego to Vancouver, B.C., we included just a wee bit of Canada. From Winnipeg up there down to Dallas, roughly that square would be about a 1,400-mile square. Now, not even considering cubes or pyramids, not even considering the height of it, what population would you fit into a city that big? Is there enough room in the New Jerusalem for all of the church? Or the first century, second century, maybe third and fourth, we'll get some Byzantines in there. Maybe they fit and it runs out of room. Is there room in the city for all of the redeemed? Well, if the New Jerusalem has the urban density, it's a city, if it has the urban density of New York City, a city this size would have enough space for roughly 530 billion people. Now, that's more people than there are in India. That's a lot of people, isn't it? But New York's kind of crowded. We get that. But imagine living close to other people when you actually like them. When you actually love them. When you actually love and enjoy connection and being together because there is no sin and selfishness involved. But okay, let's, let's spread our elbows a little bit. Let's dial it back. Maybe the urban density of Los Angeles. Still, you could fit 160 billion people. Let's dial it back further here to the north. Let's take the urban density of Portland. In the northwest, we don't like other people so, more, so much. We like a little more room, a little more space. We need a place for our, our chickens and our potbelly pigs, right, in Portland. So, a little less urban density. Still, you would fit 95 billion people. That's a lot of people just in the city. My point in all that, little fun and games with numbers, there's room in God's city for you. In fact, there's room in God's city for you to go invite somebody else and you say, hey, you come with me. You've heard it sung. There's room at the cross for you and there's room in the new Jerusalem as well. There's room for all of his redeemed. Now, some of our most precious substances, they are going to be the basic building materials. Look at verse 18. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper and sapphire and agate and emerald and onyx and carnelian and chrysolite and beryl and topaz and chrysoprase and jacinth and amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. That's a really big pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like clear glass or transparent glass. Wow. Now let's talk a little bit about the gold. 
That's a, that's a scientific point here that people, are, people fuss about. And, and you've heard it said, when gold is refined to its purest form, it becomes clear. But we're not able to do that. So we're not completely sure. But there has been, I came across an advanced science news article that, that described back in 2014 that a very thin film of gold was purified to a certain extent that it was 80% transparent. So within the realm of the possible with gold as we know it, in the corrupt environment as we have it. In fact, I was surprised to learn that NASA space helmets actually have a, a actual gold layer, a fil gold film on them that, refl that reflects or blocks, shields them from certain rays. Somebody was telling me that they, the best welding helmet they ever had was a helmet that had that, that NASA-style film of gold across it as well. Again, protects from certain arc flashes. So there's something to this transparency of pure gold, but also the, the word could be translated rather than gold-like clear glass. Let's hang on to that a minute. Let's move from the 21st century back to the first century. What did glass look like? Let's take a look. There's a bowl. Actually, this is first century BC. It's, not, it's glass, but it's not very clear, is it? It's certainly a bit opaque. Let's look at another one. This is a gladiator cup. Not that gladiators would use. Glass is too expensive for gladiators. But that celebrated the games from around the time of Nero in the first century. This would be a glass bowl, also from the first century. Again, this one is not very clear. The glass was probably the clearest version that we have. But glass in the first century was not known for the clear look right through the window. You shouldn't see any glass, just the outside. It wasn't like your Waterford crystal. That's not what we're talking about. That's not what, how glass was understood. But also in describing the glass, it could be the, the range of the word includes a, a shining brightness. Imagine a kind of gold that is somewhat translucent at least so that it, it, it channels and radiates with brilliance like a diamond the glorious light of the glory of God through and around this city. We can be hung up on can gold ever be like that, but have you looked at those pearls the pearls are the gates for these huge walls, and each gate is one pearl. Now, could you get a load of the size of that oyster? I mean, we are talking things outside the realm of our present experience, and I think that's just the point. We're supposed to have that feel to it. This relates to us. We understand it. We understand glass. We understand gold. We understand jewels. We understand pearls. And yet, like the Queen of Sheba told Solomon concerning his city, the half hasn't even been told of what it's actually like. Folks, the half hasn't even been told or certainly understood of what God's future is actually going to be like. Paul says so in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. No eye has seen, nor has it entered into the heart of man to imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't imagine it. We haven't seen it yet. We just get glimpses as they're described to us in his word. And it's going to be beautiful. But the most beautiful part of it is in verse 22, that God himself will dwell with us. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. 
So there's no temple in this city, which is interesting. This new Jerusalem then is different. It's a different time from the kingdom of Messiah on the earth that we read about in chapter 20. This is a different time because in that kingdom there certainly is a temple. Uh, Ezekiel spends several chapters from chapter 40 forward to about 46. So seven chapters describing the details of that temple and what happens there. But there's no temple in the New Jerusalem because God dwells with us. It's, it's a city temple. We are with him. And there's no separation between us that we are with, even as the church already nibbles around the edges of that and that we are the temple of God. Individually, the Spirit of God dwells within believers. Together, as a church body, we are the temple of His Spirit. So we nibble around the edges, but not to the extent that we will see Him and know Him in God's future. We will be with Him. The God and the Lamb are its temple. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night, so they're never shut. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So then, again, there's this new order, and yet there are still nations there are still kings. There are those who live within the city, as I take it, the home of the bride, the wife of the lamb, and yet there are others who live on the new earth. There are nations of peoples living on the new earth. There's some sense of identity that is either retained or restored in our renewed incorruptible, immortal humanity. That's how I understand that. That there are nations and there are kings who bring things to the capital city, the new Jerusalem, where God himself dwells, and yet they visit there, they don't live there. There's a range of identities, even in God's eternity. And that this privilege that the church of the redeemed in this current age has been given to be the bride of Christ, to be the wife of the Lamb, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that that is a privilege we seem to retain with some distinction. A distinction without any competition or jealousy, but there's some distinction of a privilege that we have been given and called to that continues into eternity. I don't fully know what to do with that. But it reminds me again of who I was and who God has made us to be. And who he has called us to be. And the privilege of the grace that he has showered upon us. And the, the standing that he has lifted and raised us to. And it, remind, it speaks to my heart and it warns me and it says, do not be distracted. Do not be drawn aside by the, by the pittance of this present world when the glory of our God is before us. They overcame by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of His testimony, and because they did not love this present life more than God's glorious future. And that is meant to strengthen that church in that first century. That is meant to strengthen us today. There will be no evil or corruption. This seems an obvious reality then. 
But how precious for the churches in that first century to hear that. How precious for us to be reminded of it. God reminds us of things that, are, that ought to be obvious to us, but we'll easily lose sight of. But none of what's wrong in the present will be in God's future. It'll be wonderful. It's described a little more in the, uh, in the following first five verses of chapter 22. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either sides of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There's in God's new heaven and earth, in the new Jerusalem, there's a fruit of the month club. Did you know that? There's a fruit of the month club. You try that in your next Bible trivia conversation. First fruit of the month club in the Bible. There it is. It's a biblical thing. Okay? And imagine this garden. The city is a garden. It's not at all just crammed in with people and structures. There's there's this beautiful garden. There's this river of life that flows through the middle of it that's big enough that everybody has access to it. That's the point. Well, New York has a central park. It doesn't have a flowing river. It has a stagnant duck pond. Ew. And you go there, you're likely to get mugged. There will be none of that here. And that contrast is the kind of thing we're supposed to be reminded of. The broken present compared to God's future. That we might be strengthened to look ahead to the future that our God has for us. So that we are not dismayed and despair in the present. And God will sustain us in life with him. The leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. No more will there be anything accursed. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. We will be together in the garden. Do you remember Genesis chapter 2? And it was very good. And then it all fell apart. And it all unraveled. And God raised up out of the idolatry of Babylon, way back then, a man named Abraham. And he said, Abraham, through you, I'm going to bless all nations. And out of Abraham comes David. And we get a first, a first hint of the coming kingdom. And from David comes David's greater son named Jesus, who died for us and rose for us and who will come and reign and whom we will live with forever and who will restore us back to a garden with God. You see what God has done. We've gone from garden in the second chapter of the Bible to a garden again in the second to the last chapter of the Bible. It's a book about God restoring what was lost through Jesus, who's the center of it all. That's what God has done for us. Now, such a beautiful place, such a wonderful future. Will you be there? That's really the question of the hour, isn't it? Will you be there? Our guilt disqualifies, but faith in God's Lamb overcomes. They overcame. They received this inheritance by the blood of the Lamb, his death for my guilt, restored into right relationships so that I belong with God. 
I belong with God when this mortal life is over and I'm absent from the body and I'm present with the Lord and I belong with God in His glorious future all the way through the kingdom into a new heaven and a new earth in an immortal, incorruptible body living in an immortal, incorruptible creation because of Jesus. Will you be there? The question is, have you believed God concerning His Son, Jesus? Now, if you will be there, but right now we're here. If God who will restore you to his tree of life, can he not also restore you in the midst of this present life? In the midst of present weaknesses and losses, cannot God give you strength? If he will restore us and strengthen us and heal us then, if he can provide the healing of the nations, can he not also heal from hurts and grief and temptations? This is what our God does, and this is the new life that we already nibble around the edges of. To be reminded of the fullness of it is to be reminded that this already is our inheritance. We can already begin to lay claim to this. Knowing that we will live forever in a life that is good, physical, earthy, reminds us that God also calls us now, empowered by His Spirit in the midst of this physical life on earth, to live out His good, that His glory would be seen even in the midst of this brokenness. We're going to sing a song in a, in a minute that captures both sides of this, both the question, will you be there, but also the living in, the present healing as we wait for God's future. That song is a song that declares, earth has no sorrow that heaven can't heal. And by heaven, Crowder means God's glorious future. All the way to a new heaven and earth where we will live with him forever. And I hope you'll be there. Let's pray. Father, First of all, we do want to pray for those who are here this morning who we want to be there. Father, we don't want anyone in this room missing. There are many neighbors and friends and family and, and, and colleagues, acquaintances, people we know that there's room in that city for them, and we would love to share it with them. Father, we are like those poor beggars outside the city gates that see the, see the wonderful overflow of what has been left behind. And there are people around them that are just starving and they dare not keep it to themselves but to share that good news with others. Lord, we would pray for some of those that we know right now, maybe someone here this morning, to trust for themselves God's promise concerning His Son Jesus who died for us to give us eternal life and right relationship with God. And Father, would You strengthen us in our confidence in your future, so that we would, in fact, hold lightly to this present, that we would trust you in the midst of present troubles, already tasting your healing, your strengthening, your comforting by your Spirit. And Lord, we long for the day, we do thirst for it, when we will experience the fullness of your healing for all of eternity. Lord, keep our hearts aimed there while we faithfully live here. And toward those around us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>